The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in April 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. And we're chatting with John Mahoney. Hi, John. How are Hi, you? Hi, how you doing? John, before we get into uh, our inquisition of you, uh-huh. let me just give a few details. Certainly, the American television viewers know you as Martin Crane, mm-hmm. the father on Frasier for 11 seasons of 11 NBC. 11 years, that's right. What I think they don't know is that you're born in England. Uh-huh. You actually came to this country as at age 19, and you started mm-hmm. acting professionally when you were 37 years of age. That's correct. We'll get into all of that. But <laughs> along the way, you won a Tony Award uh-huh. about 21 years ago for the House of Blue Leaves mm-hmm. in your Broadway debut. Yes. Your first and only show up until now on Broadway. That's correct. In between, I count 31 different shows at Steppenwolf in Chicago. Yeah. Plus uh, experience at a lot of other well-known theaters, the Almeida Theater in London, mm-hmm. um, the Irish Rep Company in both Chicago and Galway, uh, many, many other theaters. We'll get into all of that. Okay. Let's talk first about mm-hmm. Prelude to a Kiss. Okay. The storyline, an elderly man, your, call, your character is called Old Man. The Old Man. Kisses a young bride at her wedding, mm-hmm. and they switch souls. Yes. And uh, it's an amazing play to do, obviously, because how many times do you get to play uh, two different characters, one an old man, another a young woman uh, trapped in the body of this old man? And uh, the play pretty much, I think if you ask me what it's about, it's um, my answer would be uh, Carpe Diem. Uh, be very careful what you wish for. Live in, uh, be, uh Live for today because you don't know what's going to come. You don't know uh, what's going to happen if these wishes are granted. It might be a, uh, might be pretty bad. And in, and in this case, it is. The young woman is sort of afraid of life and wants to have it all over with. Uh, not die, but she just wants. She's sick of the challenges and the fears that that accompany living day to day, and she just wants to be through with all that and she ends up because of that in the body of this old man who has cancer who has cirrhosis who only has a year to live uh uh the old man ends up in the body of this young woman and uh so you'd think it would be uh better for him but actually uh it's not he uh he it's a wonderful experience in as much as he says towards the end of the play that he had an opportunity to look from the other side of to to see himself actually from the other side of the bed with his wife's eyes and he probably realizes for the first time in his life how loved he was um which is a, a wonderful thing but he also is tired of of uh, of living outside himself, and he wants to get back, regardless of the consequences to who he really is. The show poses a very interesting acting challenge in that in the first act, you are little seen. Mm -hmm. You appear late in act one and are called upon almost immediately to change the nature of your character Mm -hmm. in that you go from being the old man to being... The young woman, yeah, in the still now in the old man's body. Mm-hmm. How does it work to create to create one character and then turn so quickly to someone else? It's probably the most um, daunting uh, acting challenge I've ever had because uh, throughout that whole second act, I am Rita until uh, the end of the play, where I get switched back to Julius, uh, the old man, and then I have to have a tremendous reaction to that, but I've had no time to build up to it, you know, because I haven't been playing that man. I've been playing this young woman. All of a sudden, within seconds, I've been transformed back into my original self and have to sort of try to justify why I did it, uh, what it meant to me. Uh, It's an extremely emotional thing to have to go through with virtually no time to work up to it. It's very, very difficult. Uh, the first part is is relatively simple. I mean, I, I make a few crosses, which, by the way, weren't in the original uh, script. Uh, but Dan Sullivan, the director, said he just didn't want to wait that long to introduce such an important character. He wanted to have him part of the play right from the start. So I make a cross at the start of the play. Uh, I make another cross later on. Um, 
just obviously but, and silent. It totally silent. Yeah, carrying a bag, walking home from a drugstore, having cars honk at me, 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 being totally unaware of them, just wrapped in my own misery, and uh, and then wander in on this wedding. And uh, just seeing this wedding, seeing the the, the what the wonder and the uh, the joy of these two young people, what they're going through, what their life is going to be like, it reminds me of of, of how it was for me at one time, and I desperately want to relive that moment and desperately want to be want to have that back. And with the combination of my will and my dis- huge desire for this and Rita the young bride's huge desire and fear of uh, of the moment and of, and of life itself and is this marriage going to last and all of that and the other she wants she wants what she imagines is the security of my old age I want what I imagine is the joy of her youth and the two ideas are so powerful and so simultaneous that they happen now, for our radio audience who may not have seen the show, mm-hmm. you physically look like the old man. You're dressed yes. as a man. You look just like you always have. Right. But now you have the spirit, the body, uh, the, the mind, I should say, of a woman. Yes. Uh, how do you interpret that without making it camp, without making it, you know, different? Absolutely. No, that's something I had to really work uh, against. I didn't want to be uh, flamboyantly feminine or anything like that uh, because she has to uh, – or she has to convince the old man's daughter with whom she's living that that she is the daughter's father so she can't be all of a sudden you know uh this uh, flighty and very feminine person and i think uh, you know Rita's smart enough to know that if she's going to be able to if she is going to continue hiding out at, uh, with the old man's daughter she's got to be convincingly an old man so um, I never try to uh, I never try to be overly feminine. I had uh, Anne, Annie uh, Paris, who plays uh, Rita, go over all my lines, repeat them for me, and repeat them until I could sort of get a, a, a an idea of of her of the way she talks, of the way that uh, the way that Rita talks, but not necessarily the timbre of her voice or anything like that, but just more the just how this person talks. I also extremely uh, was extremely careful about uh, physicalizing it. And uh, pretty much what I do is very, very subtle. It's mostly I watched the way she sat tried to remember to keep my knees together. <laughs> um, tried to uh, just the way she brushes hair off her ear, uh, and almost an unconscious gesture that many women do. I mean, it, uh, even if it isn't there, you, it's just something women do. And uh, so I, I watched Annie's. Uh, I, I physicalized a lot of the things that she did, and I tried to use the same uh, speech patterns that she did without making them overtly feminine. Well, many actors, as they're interpreting a role, try to get into the character, mm-hmm. the character's mindset, and understand who the character is. Here, yeah. you and Annie are both interpreting two characters. She's yes. interpreting your character, you're interpreting hers, and, and your own as well. Yeah. Did you two work together to decide who these two characters are, the old man and, and Rita? Well, the, the way we worked together was we, we, we sat across the table several times, and she read my lines, and I read hers. And she would watch me how I sat. She she sits a lot differently than than she does when she's uh, Rita, when she's the old man, but still in Rita's body. Her uh, there's there's something about her that she straightens up. She uh, she spreads her legs. She um, uh, she's got a very sort of uh, rough quality to her voice. Sometimes at one point uh, she says to her her husband, who still has no idea what's going on, you know. Watch it, Mac. And it really sounds like a construction worker talking. <laughs> but for the most part, she's able to do that just with a very, very firm, um, uh, no-nonsense voice. And uh, that uh, – so it, it pretty much was the two of us reading each other's lines. There was one line in particular I, I just absolutely couldn't get. I knew it was supposed to be a laugh line of some sort. And I just – and it's uh, it's a point where I, where – 
I find out that I've got cancer and I find out I've got cirrhosis and and, and I say to my husband, uh, okay, we've got to figure this out. We've got to get, we have to work out a plan here. Uh, what do we know? We know that he wouldn't have gone to my parents if he was going to disappear. Obviously, he wants to be me. Why? And then I have this line, well, who wouldn't? And it just never worked. I couldn't get it to work. So I asked Annie one time, I said, would you say that for me? And she did. And I said, again, and she did, and again, and she did. And she did it about six or eight times for me. And I always noticed she sort of hitched her shoulders at, at one part that I'd never thought of. It was I, I don't know if it's a woman thing or it was a character thing that she chose to do. But it became, um, well, hitch your shoulders, who wouldn't? And from that moment on, the moment I started doing that, which is an absolute out-and-out copy of what uh, Anne, Annie did for me, uh, the laughs, huge laughs have always been there. Mm-hmm. But it, was, it was proved extremely helpful. We're talking about the physical elements of the character and finding mm-hmm. the roles. I'm wondering, this is a revival. This play was Craig Lucas's real breakthrough play. Right. Um, where was Craig Lucas in this process, and what did he share with you about the play 17 years on mm-hmm. in its life? Craig was there uh, virtually every day uh, for the first week or so of rehearsal, and then he, I don't know if he thought that he was there too much or or what, but then he'd start coming when invited. Um, like, I don't know, like uh, a lot of great playwrights, it was like working, uh, you know, when I was doing House of Blue Leaves with Jerry Zaks and John Guare was there every day. John never said a word, uh, neither did Craig, unless he was asked. Uh, he never usurped the director's uh, province and... Um, uh, so he was there and funny and and if, if, if you had a problem with something, you'd usually ask Dan Sullivan, the director, and Dan would then ask uh, uh, Craig uh, about that. And Craig would be very forthcoming with, you know, why he'd written this and why they're saying this and, and what he actually meant. Um, but you, it's funny. You, you'd think that somebody like a playwright would remember everything. But because he's written so many things since then, and because this was so long ago, there were things that he didn't know. Mm-hmm. That I'd say to Dan, maybe, uh, is, is is this serious? Am I, is, is this uh, is this meant to be ironic, or is it? You know, am I? Well, uh, Craig, what did you have in mind there? And Craig said, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really don't know. He said, just listening to it now, I would say, yes, it's definitely ironic, but I don't remember writing it for that specific reason. <laughs> but he was there to uh, to answer anything if we needed it, um, but he was very um, – he, he didn't butt in, which sounds a strange thing to say when you're talking about a, a playwright, but he didn't. He, he knew that uh, – this was not the same production that that he had uh, that had originally been on Broadway. Uh, it was a different production with different actors, a different director, and uh, and as long as we didn't change, as long as we stayed in the parameters, I think of of what he had meant. He had no no problems, no complaints, no, uh, and he just let us go our own way. I would assume that you've had other opportunities to come back to Broadway between House of Blue Leaves Mm -hmm. and Prelude to a Kiss. You've certainly done extensive stage work. Mm -hmm. Was there a particular reason that you wanted to do this play, or was it just the luck of timing? It was absolutely the luck of timing. I had seen a wonderful production of this play about 12, 13 years ago in Chicago, uh, directed by Sheldon Patinkin and uh, with... uh, Mike Nussbaum. Was Mike it? Nussbaum was the old man, yes. And um, it was just, uh, I always thought, wow, what a fascinating play and what a wonderful part, and I would like to do that sometime. The reason I haven't been back to Broadway since uh, House of Blue Leaves is simply because I was tied up mostly with television. And uh, the times that I had, the, the, the four-month hiatus I would have in between uh, in between seasons was enough for me to do a play in Chicago or, uh, you know, a, a house. But nobody wanted to hire me to come to New York to do a play where I would only be available for, you know, maybe a, a month rehearsal and then a two-and-a-half-month run. They just weren't interested in that. Uh, so it was just um, it was just serendipitous that uh, 
that it happened to be a, a subscription house like the Roundabout that, that decided to put this play on, and it was a play that I wanted very much to do. Um, I would have loved to have been back in New York. I, I absolutely love working here. This is only my fourth show here, and uh, uh, I hope there'll be many more now that I don't have the television commitments, but uh, that's the reason it took so long, TV. Well, let's jump back now, because as we talk about the bright lights of Broadway, when you came over from England, mm-hmm. it was not to be a theater star. Right. You you wanted out of Manchester, England. Exactly, yes. Uh, yeah, I was... Um, my I have a sister who's a war bride, and my whole family came over to visit her when I was 11, which would be in 1951. And we... Uh, I just loved it. I knew this is where I want to live. I mean, I was living at the, at the time in Manchester, which was still still taking my ration book, you know, to the store to buy uh, uh, what we ever could buy. I mean, I, I didn't taste chicken until I came to the United States when I was 11 years old. I... Um, no fresh fruit or anything like that. I played in bombed out buildings. Um, we still had an air raid shelter in our backyard. Uh, it was just, you know, it was everything was gray and horrible. And I come to the United States and I go to my sister's. Uh, she'd married a farmer who was in the service station in Manchester. And all of a sudden, I'm this huge farm and uh, chickens and eggs and plenty of food and a car. I'd never even dr- ridden in a car, let alone driven one. Um, I, it was really just because I just wanted to be in the United States. I read an interview where you said it was like in The Wizard of Oz, where it changed from black and white to color <laughs> Exactly. <for> you. <laughs> That's exactly what it was like. I, you know, I get off that... I remember getting off the boat and uh, being in the uh, railroad station, ready to get on the train to to go down to uh, uh, to my sister's farm. And strange things you don't think of, but you know, I was young, and I remember seeing a bum in the station and thinking, "How did he get over here?" It never occurred mm-hmm. to me that there were bums in the United States, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, I asked for a cup of tea, and they gave me this uh, cup of hot water and a little bag with tea in it. And I thought, what's this? I'd never seen a tea bag in my life. And I opened the tea bag and dumped the tea in the cup, and it all floated <laughs> to the top, of course, because it wasn't hot enough to. And uh, but yeah, it was, then I got to the farm, and it was just incredible, just this beautiful, beautiful place. So well, you, you were 19 when you came here. Yeah. You joined the Army. Yes. And that's where you lost your British accent. Right. When I came here first, they had the draft, and I would have been drafted. You didn't have to be a citizen. You just had to be a permanent resident. Uh-huh. So I would have been drafted anyway. But I figured if I joined the Army uh, for three years, I talked to some recruiters, I'd be able to uh, get a loan to go to college. I'd be able to get that out of the way, my my, dra- my uh, army uh, uh, obligation. obligation. And uh, I'd be able to choose what I did in the Army. Uh, and I, there, there were a lot of benefits from it. Uh, so I joined the Army, and I was a clerk typist instead of, like, maybe being put in the motor pool or something, which would have been hell for me because I'd know nothing about mechanics. And, um, and I got my citizenship a lot uh, several years quicker, and I was able to get a loan to go to school. And while I was in the Army, I would. I would actually use little cards, index cards, and I would say to people, because I was just so sick of people saying to me, you know, uh, say banana, and I'd say banana, and then, oh, ho, 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 and they just love that and everything. So so I, I would ask people, I'd say, how do you say this? And I'd write it down. How do you say this? I'd write it down, and I would sort of drill myself like I was learning a foreign language. Uh, and uh, but it wasn't to be an actor. It wasn't. It wasn't so that I could fit on stage or anything like that. It was just because this is where I wanted to live, and I wanted to sound like everybody else. And it's gotten me in trouble a couple of times, like in England, when I've done plays in England, and I've been uh, been interviewed, and and somebody will say to me, "Were you ashamed of you know your Mancunian accent or your British accent?" And I say, "No, not at all. I just if I was going to live in France, I'd want to live the best, speak the best French I could, or Germany, I'd want to speak the best German. I was living in the United States, and I wanted to sound like everybody else. I just wanted to blend in, and that was going to be my home, and that's what I wanted to sound like, as if I came from there. So by the time I got out of the army, yeah, my." Uh, my accent was gone completely. In fact, when I started uh, college in Quincy, Illinois, uh, nobody had any idea that I was. Uh, and then when I went to graduate school, we had a t- we had to take twelve hours of linguistics, and one of the uh, professors prided himself on being able to 
tell you exactly why you were from. You had to stand out and say like five or six sentences and say, "Oh, you're from Boston. You're from, you're from uh, <laughs> very Henry Higgins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very much so. But he didn't get me. He didn't know <laughs> where did he think you were from? He thought I was from Massachusetts, but not Boston. Uh, some some town in Massachusetts. I can't remember which one. But no, he didn't get me. So those flashcards really paid off. Oh, they really paid off. Yeah. <laughs> well, after you get out of the army, you taught college for a few years as right. an English professor. Yes. Uh huh. And then you worked editing a dull medical journal. Yeah. You see, what had happened was I had worked my way through college and graduate school as an orderly uh-huh. in a hospital. Uh-huh. I had this. Ma- I'd, I'd worked everywhere in that hospital uh, from. Uh, Geriatrics, pediatrics, uh, psychiatric, medical, surgical, uh, everywhere basically except uh, obstetrics. And um, I had a huge medical background and a master's in English. So when I moved to Chicago, I thought, you know, I didn't want to teach again. I realized I was a rotten teacher. So I thought, uh, I'll put this to use. So I got a job as an editor, an associate editor on a uh, medical journal. And that's what I did until I was 37. And uh, <laughs> and then what struck you to say, you know what, I want to start acting? It was just a combination of things. I was so miserable. I was just so... But, I mean, I didn't go home every night and bang my head against a wall or anything like that. But I knew something was wrong with my the, life. The Technicolor was, had faded. Yeah, the te- it was black and white again, <laughs> exactly. It was not even black and white. Like You know, it was just gray. And I was... Uh, Oh, I don't know. I was drinking too much. I was a couch potato. I was just getting off work, drinking a six-pack, watching television, uh, just doing nothing with my life. And I thought, <clears throat> is this going to be it? Am I going to be uh, – Is I, it can't be. There's got to be something, you know, that, that I loved that, that, that I should try before I get any older. And at this time, I went home to England to visit my family. And before that, before I went to Manchester, I spent several days in London. And I saw several plays, and one in particular that I saw at the National Theater was Jumpers, that Tom Stoppard play, uh, with Michael Hordern. And um, it just blew my mind. I mean, that's such a cliche to say, but it did. It just, my mind just exploded, and... uh, uh, and I, then I went to Manchester, and at, at the Royal Exchange Theatre, they were doing Uncle Vanya with uh, Albert Finney and Leo McKern. And uh, there again, I just went, and everything was still flying around in my head. This is it. This is what I want to do. This is what I did. This I loved doing this when I was a kid. Why did I give it up? Why didn't I do it? And one of the reasons is I emigrated to the United States and didn't want to be the archetypal sponging brother-in-law, you know, and 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 living off my sister <clears throat> and her husband. So I, I went for for what was safe, uh, teaching, uh, edit editing, and uh, and now it just like. All right, I've got to do this. I've got to try it before I get one day older because I don't want to be an old man looking back on my life saying, why didn't I try it? Or or an old man looking back and saying, well, I could have done better than that, but having to finally admit that you never had the guts to try. So I um, I enrolled in an, I went to see a wonderful production of The Crucible at uh, – Steppenwolf, uh, excuse me, at the old St. Nicholas Theatre. But it wasn't the old St. Nicholas Theatre at that time. It was the St. Nicholas Theatre that had just been started by David Mamet, W.H. Macy, and Stephen Schachter. And it was just uh, it was just an amazing experience to see that play. Um, I'm sorry, it was View from the Bridge, uh, not The Crucible. And I noticed in the program that they offered acting classes, and I thought, well, why don't I try this? So I enrolled in a class, and it was just wonderful. I felt alive again. The color was coming back to my life. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then I got cast out of that class uh, into David Mamet's new play, which at that time was uh, The Water Engine. And I got my equity card uh, with that first play. I was playing a smaller role at first, and then when it extended, they put me into a bigger part, and they said, you're going to have to join equity for this because of the size of the role and everything and because you're replacing an equity actor, but we can't afford to pay you. So what you'll have to do is we'll give you your check, and then you sign it back to the theater. And I said, okay, fine. So I got my first check, and they asked for it back, and I said, no, I'm not doing it. Sorry. Uh, I, I refused to give it back to them. I knew they didn't have an understudy. They couldn't fire me. And I figured anyway that this was going to be my life now, and, and I wanted to be paid for it. And uh, so uh, I uh, – Peter Schneider was the was – the, uh, 
Peter's the managing director. He was the managing director at the time and went on to become uh, the CEO at Disney. And um, ran into him in London a few years later, and he brought it up, you know, how I cheated them out of their money. But, <laughs> no, he said it in a good way. But I just figured I was going to be an actor now. I wanted, you know, I wanted to be a professional actor, and I wanted to be paid for it. Although I did turn around and do that when uh, Steppenwolf asked me to do a play. I had uh, I'd done a play with John Malkovich, my second play at, uh, at St. Nicholas Theater. It was called Ashes. And John and I hit it off real well. And when Steppenwolf decided to move into the city from Highland Park, uh, they wanted to expand the company. So every member of the company was asked to bring somebody in that they had worked with. And so John invited me to be a member of Steppenwolf. And uh, I said, yeah, of course I would. And um, I did a play before I was a member of Steppenwolf. I did a play there. I filled in for somebody who had gotten sick, a play called uh, Philadelphia, Here I Come. And uh, John said, Johnny, you know, we don't have the money to pay you. Most of us are not equity, and you are, and uh, we have to pay you, but we can't really afford it. I said, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me. And uh, they wrote the check out, and I just gave it back to them. But they, you know, they couldn't afford it. I mean, they were working in a church basement, their you know, eighty seat capacity, as opposed to the Saint Nicholas Theater, who could afford to pay me, but just you know, wanted to uh, make a little extra money. So I didn't do it for Saint Nick, but I did do it for Steppenwolf. At the time that you were joining Steppenwolf in their very early days, people talked about them as rock and roll theater, as real young, energetic. And you were, I would assume, a bit older than the rest of them. Quite a bit. So, so where did you fit in the ensemble? Were you just mm-hmm. there to do all of the father, parent, authority figures Exactly. For them? When I first, yeah, when I first joined them, they said, uh, I remember um, the artistic director at that time saying, oh, it'd be so great. We'd use a member of our own company for all the fathers and everything now. We don't have to go outside the company. And uh, and that basically is what I did. I was Joan Allen's father. I was Laurie Metcalf's father. I was Gary Sinise's father. I was John Malkovich's father. I was, uh, you know, I was everybody's dad. And uh, and then eventually as they started getting older, and I did too, I just, uh, I, I got to play other roles, not necessarily the father. But yeah, they brought me in primarily to, uh, to play uh, the fathers. And, uh, you know, it was it was terrifying at first because uh, I was just starting out my career, and I find myself on stage with these, with all these people, with John and Gary and Joan and Laurie, and and I'm just, I'm just, I can barely open my mouth. I'm so intimidated because they're so great. But we should make clear for our listeners that at the time that you're doing this, now these are all household names yeah. from television and film. They were not known. Steppenwolf was a Chicago phenomenon right. that had not broken out. Yeah. Absolutely, but they but that didn't alter the fact that they were brilliant actors, you know, and uh, they were they had a huge reputation in Chicago before we ever moved to you know ever brought our first play to New York, which I believe was Bomb and Gilead, and uh, and then um, uh, True West. But uh, in Chicago, I mean, when we, when we did Bomb and Gilead in Chicago, for example, it won every award they're going. We were taking home our $60 a week salaries, and uh, and it was winning just every prize and every award that you can imagine. Um, well, that was the breakthrough, really, for the company yeah. in New York. Did you come with that production to Circle Rep? I- no, I didn't. You know, it was weird. Even though I hadn't been in um, – I hadn't been an actor that long, I knew that if I was going to come to New York – I had to do it on uh, better terms than the part that I was playing in Bombing Gilead because everybody else was so young that had plenty of time to, to make their mark here. I was already by this time in my 40s, and um, I thought, no, it's, it's a good part to do in Chicago, but it's not going to do anything for me in New York. It's not that memorable. So I declined to come to New York in that. I was, was offered the role, but I didn't come. And was that the same case with Enda Nightingale saying? Because that came in. <laughs> no, that I, I, that I wasn't offered. Okay. Um, I, a lot of that might have, might have had to do with the fact that uh, the director and I just didn't hit it off. Um, Terry Kinney. Uh, we we clashed all the time on on and a nightingale sang. Terry, I've got to say that Terry's one of my best friends, and 
some of the plays that he's done for Chicago in Chicago have been some of the best plays we've ever done. Uh, his um, oh, his production of uh, uh, oh the uh, oh the Steinbeck of uh, Mice and Men was I, I'll never forget that. I think that's the best thing we, we ever did. And Terry directed that, and I was in it, and uh, with John and Gary, and uh, also and the Nightingale sang was just so wonderful and um, the Anthony Burgess one uh, Clockwork Orange just incredible but Terry and I did not hit it off work wise uh, I always felt like a marionette when he was directing I felt that I had no say no input whatsoever and it was it was very uh, we clashed quite a bit and that's why I didn't he didn't offer me the part when when the play came to New York so there's a great irony in that when you finally do come to New York uh -huh. with Steppenwolf yeah. for your breakthrough in many ways, yeah. you were acting with Terry Kinney. That's true, yeah, and, and, and had a wonderful year doing so it. So tell us about Orphans. Orphans was just a phenomenon. Uh, we, there again, I, I, I sound kind of paranoid, but I'm not. Um, but I always thought that Gary Sinise didn't like me. Well, no, I knew he liked me as a person. We got along great. But I, I thought he didn't care for my work. And because of all the plays that Gary directed at Steppenwolf, he never used me. Even a play like uh, Tracers, where I was the only member of the company who was a veteran. And Tracers was Tracers a show about, uh, about Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah, yep. yeah. And he would, Gary wouldn't even consider me for it. And um, he cast Dennis Farina, as a matter of fact, in the part that I wanted so badly. And Dennis wasn't a member of the company. And Dennis had been an actor even less time than I had because he was a very late bloomer, too. He was a cop. <laughs> exactly, yeah, when he did his first play at Steppenwolf, uh, which was uh, Prayer for My Daughter. And um, But uh, so I, I didn't think Gary liked my work. And then all of a sudden, one day, uh, he says, uh, read this. I'd like you to do this. And he throws me the script of Orphans. And I read it. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, this is incredible. So uh, we went ahead and we Gary directed it with Kevin Anderson and Terry Kinney. And it was a huge, huge hit in Chicago. And uh, then one day, Terry and Gary's agents from ICM, uh, Sam Cohn and... Uh, uh, Paul Martino came to see the show in Chicago and uh, said that it was going to be transferred to New York and uh, could they represent me and this, that, and the other. And I thought, well, that's great. You know, usually you have to, you know, really scavenge to find an agent. And here I was being offered something right off the bat. So we came to New York, huge hit. I think we ran for maybe nine months at the West Side Arts and, uh, Great, great reviews. Uh, it, it, it was just what sort of made me. There's no question about that. It was because of of orphans that. Uh, well, first of all, I got to do some really wonderful movies like Tin Man and Manhattan Project and uh, uh, Moonstruck uh, because the directors of those films had seen me uh, in uh, in Orphans, and uh, it also got me the part basically, of uh, Artie Shaughnessy in House of Blue Leaves because uh, John Guare had seen the play and uh, when they were getting ready to, to do the revival at Lincoln Center, uh, he told them to call me in and I went in and, and uh, read for Jerry's Axe and got the part. And so uh, I, Orphans really was a huge, huge turning point in my life. I'd say the two people I owe most to for my theatrical success or uh, John Malkovich for bringing me into the company because I don't think anything I never would have amounted to anything I don't think without being a part of Steppenwolf and um, and Gary Sinise for casting me in, uh, and directing me in Orphans uh, he just wouldn't he just was on me all the time but I never found it oppressive and I never found it irritating like with Terry uh, it's just you know I don't know why I mean Gary would no no you can do better than that come on give me more give me more give me more um, and uh, it just, uh, yeah, I'd say those two are the uh, have meant the most to me as far as uh, any success I've had in theater go. 
Well, you bring up the House of Blue Leaves. You mentioned a moment ago that uh, you wanted to be sure you had the right vehicle when you came to New York, that you were in the yeah. right show. Right. So here you are cast in a John Guerra play in mm-hmm. that 1986. Yeah. You're in your mid-40s yourself. Yeah. And your cast is Artie Shaughnessy, who mm-hmm. is a, a zookeeper who dreams of being a songwriter. Right. Lives in a small flat in an apartment in Sunnyside, Queens right. in New York City. Uh-huh. With a very interesting supporting cast. You have Ooh. Swoosie Kurtz yeah. as your wife. Yes. As Bananas. Or, yes. Or Bananas. <laughs> it's a good thing you learned <laughs> how to say bananas. bananas. Yeah. 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 And uh, with Stockard Channing as your girlfriend, That's so to right. speak, Bunny. Yes. How did that come about for you? It came about because uh, John had seen me in Orphans uh-huh. and uh, recommended me to Jerry's Axe to, uh-huh. uh, to, to read. And I right. came in and read for Jerry on a couple of occasions. And uh, I get they like my reading, and so they offered me the part. And you just felt this was the right part to make. Well, yeah, you know, I'd already made my 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 mark in New York. That but, was what I was very, with orphans, but not on Broadway. But this not on Broadway. Broadway. No, this is I'd never been on Broadway. That was beyond my wildest dreams. I was never, and am not, a, a particularly ambitious kind of a person. Uh, you know, when I when I finally became uh, a working actor in Chicago. I would have been happy to stay there the rest of my life because I, you know, I was I was late thirties and I, had finally found what I wanted to do and something that I was good at and something that I was passionate about, and I I didn't want to be. It never occurred to me to be a star just as long as I could keep on that stage and stay working and stay working, and I was working steadily in Chicago. I mean, I was doing sometimes the whole five plays in a mm-hmm. Steppenwolf season, in addition to working at Goodman and and uh, Pheasant Run and, and National Jewish Theater and a lot of other theaters in Chicago. I didn't. I was making a living. You know, I was. Doing commercials and industrial films and some uh, print work and stuff like that. And I didn't need any more money. But orphans came along and, and I had no say in it. I was taken to New York. You know, not against my will by any means, but it, I, I hadn't gone for it. You know what I mean? Uh, and all of a sudden, um, I, I, I was living on a whole different level. And. And then with House of Blue Leaves, it was great. I just, you know, Jerry was just such a wonderful uh, director. He's very considerate. He'd give you your notes in private, you know. He'd, uh, you know, most directors, they'll, they'll, they'll say, uh, Stockard this, uh, Swoozie that, uh, John this, uh, Chris that, uh, Julie this. Jerry would like put his arm around you and say, "John Allah, come over here." Uh, I think I think that's a Jewish thing. I'm not sure. John <laughs> Add a little la at the end of it. It's a term of affection, I think. Like he'd say, "Swoozala, John Allah," and uh, and he and then he'd give you your notes in private and um, and. Uh, I, that cast was just incredible, you know. The, those that you mentioned, plus Julie Haggerty, plus Chris Walken, and uh, it, it just it, it was just an amazing uh, cast. And uh, we nobody anticipated that it was going to be such a big hit. That's why we started at the Mitzi Newhouse. Well, it's technically off Broadway to start at the yeah, New House, and then the it transferred. House. Yeah, and then it transferred to uh, the Vivian Beaumont, and then it transferred to uh, to the Plymouth, and uh, so that ran for a year. And uh, I was able to do that for a whole year. It was just amazing. And by that time, I must say, I had uh, uh, all of a sudden I wasn't auditioning for anything anymore. I was going on meetings, and, and uh, you the phone was ringing. Was, right, and of course the Tony made the huge difference. All of a sudden, I, uh, you know, I was a Tony Award winner. It was just you know you just that's the, the apex. That's the you know the peak of what you can what you what you strive for and um so yeah it, my life was never the same after house of blue leaves <laughs> i am curious about when you went into blue leaves listening to you talk about how you developed as an actor and working in chicago and of course steppenwolf is such a family was that difficult for you to step outside of the chicago community the chicago actors that you'd been with and suddenly you were an actor put in a community that you'd not worked in before with artists you'd not been involved with before you're absolutely right that's a great question you 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 reach a certain comfort zone uh at steppenwolf or with any place where you work for a long period of time and uh it was it was very different when I when I started to do House of Blue Leaves. Uh, I learned so much. I would say more f- from one show with Jerry Zaks than I did 
everything else that I had done combined. I mean, he taught me concepts that I hadn't even thought about, like earning moments uh, that I, I didn't really uh, understand uh, until Jerry uh, about um, he would he'd go insane if you would like uh, speak in any kind of uh, valley lingo. Like you had to make your points. You always such a big point of his was to make your points. You you don't say, well, I went to uh, the mall and then I no, you went to the mall. You did this. You spoke that. You ba You ba. You make your points. You don't just sing song your way through something. You know, and it and it's such a very positive direction. It 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 really. Invigorates you and it and it, it keeps things fresh for you and uh, it just your your whole performance um, is just realer and truer and uh, I think anyway, mm. um, but yeah, it, so it was difficult. Um, it was, you know, some um, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a in a. A shocking way. I'm, I won't say who said it because that wouldn't be fair. But I remember one time an actor in that uh, play in Hospital Relief said, "Boy, you're really, um, you're really generous. You you even act when you're facing upstage, don't you?" And I thought, "What are you talking about? I'm supposed to just turn it off because the audience <laughs> can't see my face?" But uh, I don't know. Maybe some people do. I mean, I certainly couldn't do anything like that. And uh, and I I was sort of. I saw some real uh, upstaging and scene stealing and, and, and stuff go on in that play that, you know, that jolted me into uh, a much more realistic view of the theater than I had had uh, at Steppenwolf, where pretty much I can honestly say everybody is, is for you and nobody would dream of upstaging you and nobody would dream of, uh, of uh, stealing your focus. Uh, but my focus was stolen quite a few times in House of Blue Leaves, I must say. <laughs> oh, we'll only guess, oh, given we'll that guess. Yes, that's right. Well, you talk about Jerry Zaks uh, saying about earning moments. Uh, what, what exactly does that mean, earning moments? Well, you moments? can't just all of a sudden come up with something that, that you haven't earned earlier in. Uh, you can't just sort of do something or or say something in a particular way that is totally at odds with what you've been doing or, or what you've been working up to just for shock value. You know, you can't do that. You you establish a character and you work your way up to those moments and then you have earned whatever you do as that character mm-hmm. in that moment. You can't, it, but it's got to be all a part of... Uh, of something you, you know that's been planned from the start and that, that logically follows to that moment and makes that moment real. You were on Fraser for eleven seasons, something like mm-hmm. two hundred sixty-three episodes. Yes, each one was a little play in itself. Yes, your Steppenwolf background, your other theater background, mm-hmm. was that helpful in preparing you to do a, a weekly television show? Yeah, it was. You know, people turn their nose up quite a bit at. Uh, uh, Sitcoms, and sometimes rightly so. I mean, uh-huh. you know, I I think of Frasier. I loved every minute of it, but I'm, I, you know, I think of something like Married with Children, and I would have killed myself if I was on that for like two or three years, or a lot of horrible, you know, sitcoms. But, but you know, something like Frasier, it it was like being in a rap company. Uh-huh. You know, you rehearse a whole week, you shoot in sequence, which you never do on one-hour shows or movies, and you do it in front of a live audience. And uh, so it was like doing a play every week. It was, and uh, so my Steppenwolf background. To tell you the truth, the theater that we that I worked in mostly, the first Steppenwolf theater, uh, no, the second one. The first one was the Hull House. The second Steppenwolf theater that uh, we took over, which is the old Saint Nicholas Theater when they went out of business. Um, virtually that stage and that setting and that theater were identical to uh, the stage and the, the, the seating arrangement uh, of Frasier. It was, I swear to God, it, 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 was, it was like doing a play at, at, at Steppenwolf with the audience right there that you uh-huh. bump into if you, if you take too wide a turn. Um, uh, the, the, the length of it, everything about it. So I was very comfortable on that stage. And a lot of actors, when they, when they do television, um, when they do uh, sitcoms especially, 
they think that they go into a different mode. You know, it's it's very strange. We've had some wonderful there again. I'm not going to mention names. But I'll tell you about them after the show. No, I won't really. That's a terrible thing to say. But um, some wonderful actors, some stage actors uh, who came to do Frasier, and most of them were just spectacular. You know, James Earl Jones and... and um, uh, Derek Jacobi and you know, just they were just great and great fun to work with and everything. But some thought, okay, I'm doing a sitcom, so now I have to go into my sitcom mode, and they'd get all silly and unreal, and uh, and it, it was it was very very strange to watch that because you have to be as honest doing that as you are doing King Lear, as far as I'm concerned. You've 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 got to. You, you have to be honest. You have to be as honest as you can on that stage and uh, and seek the truth. And the laughs will come from that. You don't need to pull faces. You don't need to swap inane badinage. You know, it's it'll come from the truth if you play it truthfully. In your television experience, were you able to then take some of that experience and transfer that back to the theater? In other words, is it a two-way street? Hmm. That's very interesting. Uh I don't remember taking any of my television experience back to the theater, mainly because, you know, the um, the the two media are so different. Um, you've got to be so big on stage. Uh, you've got to make sure everybody in that last row of that highest balcony can uh, knows what you're talking about, uh, can hear you. Uh, uh, on uh, doing a, a sitcom, you've, you've got a little microphone attached to you. You can speak as low, uh, as soft as you want. You've got a huge camera right in front of you. You can, with the slightest raising of an eyebrow, you can just make everything that you've said obviously a joke. You can, um, uh, you can't do that on stage. Nobody, so not, people are not going to see it. So, you know, you've, you've, you've got to be bigger. If you take stage work and transfer it to television or film, it's going to look like kabuki. It's just going <laughs> to look so overacted and, and too loud. And it's like, you know, you, you get in one mode, you're in a film mode or you're in a, uh, a stage mode. The first time I auditioned for the Coen Brothers uh, for, uh, it was for a film called Raising Arizona, which I didn't get because I was in my stage mode when I auditioned. I was doing Orphans, and uh, so I was very loud, and I was very big, and I was very... And I remember looking at Joel Cohn sitting there, and it uh, looked like that ad for a uh, for speakers. Have you ever seen that ad in the paper? It's like for some kind of speakers where a guy's sitting... Oh, yeah. And being blown back in the chair. Being blown back in That's exactly yeah. what Joel yeah. and Ethan looked like <laughs> while I was doing my audition. And we got through with it, and Joel said, that was really good. He'd seen Orphans, so, you know, that's why I was called in. Uh, he said, could you try it again? Um, this time, as a human being, <laughs> I knew what he meant. He wasn't trying to be cruel. I knew that. He was, and, uh, but just, I was just too big. I was just, just, just yeah. bring it down. A exactly. Bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a different question about coming not back because you continued to do stage work throughout your time on Frasier. But there is a phenomenon that happens, particularly with an, when an actor plays a role on an incredibly popular series for a long period of time where people, first of all, believe that the character is the person, mm -hmm. and certainly that there are aspects of a performance or, or of a style that an actor has that become very familiar. Now when you work on stage, do you have to think about not being Martin Crane when mm. you do it? That's very interesting. It goes through my head while I'm doing Prelude to a Kiss, mainly because of the limp. Uh I I fought with that. I you know I, I I'm a very spry person <laughs> for my age, but uh, I you know I, I walk fast, I move fast, I talk fast. I you know, and uh, I Dan Sullivan was saying, John, you've got to pull it back. You've got to you've got to you know you can't be like that. You the the title is the old man, you know, mm -hmm. and you're dying of cancer and cirrhosis and this that and the other. So I, I had to slow myself down, and I thought, oh. God, should I do a limp or not? Are people going to think it's Marty Crane or you know? Is, is but then I thought, no. Well, that's just something that they're going to have to deal with. I want to make it as real as possible. So yes, I am going to. I'm going to. I'm. I am going to limp along there. Uh, 
that, that was a cause of concern for me. Another thing is um, I might – if I had not done Frasier and if I w- were not known for being Marty Crane, I might have been a little more – I might have gone after more laughs in uh, certain parts of Prelude to a Kiss. Uh, but now I'm afraid if I do, uh, people are going to say, oh, you know, he's reverting back to, to, to what he feels most comfortable with uh, and Marty Crane and this, that, and the other. So I tend to um, I tend to sacrifice laughs in a lot of things that I do. Uh, uh, since then, I've done quite – you know, since Frasier ended, I've done a lot of plays. Uh, uh, I never sang for my father, The Dresser. Romance, uh, the drawer boy. This is my fifth play actually since uh, Frasier finished, and now I'm always a little uh, leery about appearing in any way like uh, like Martin Crane. But in Prelude to a Kiss, not only do you have the limp, you also wear the plaid shirt that Marty Crane wore. Why not costume a little bit differently? Wear a corduroy shirt or something else? You know? Yeah, I know, but you know, uh, that was Jane's choice. Uh-huh. I never argue with the designers, uh-huh. ever. You know, and uh, the only thing, I wanted him to look a lot... Uh, I didn't want him to look so good. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how... I remember there was a review that said... Um, that described me as dashing and buff. <laughs> I've never been buff in my life. I don't know where they got that from. And dashing, I did not want to look. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted the clothes to be baggy because I'm sick and I'm old and I'm dying. And, and I, I, I didn't want to look spruce in any way. But uh, obviously, uh, Dan wanted me to look a certain way, and Jane, uh, in designing the, the wardrobe, wanted me to look a certain way. So I just had to go along with it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, with somebody with your list of credits, we can't talk about all of the shows that you've done. But I do want to ask about a couple of those shows that you've now done in the post Fraser era. Uh-huh. Um, the Drawer Boy mm-hmm. is one that you did originally at Steppenwolf, and then yeah. some of us here on the East Coast got a chance to see it at Paper Mill Playhouse uh-huh. when you did it. Right. Um, I'm curious as to what drew you to that play, because the choice to do something a second time, mm-hmm. it's not just about the opportunity, but you obviously have to want to continue to, to work on yeah. that material. Um, it's been a hugely popular play in regional uh-huh. theater. It's been done in many places. But what, what right. attracted you to it? My, my first uh, uh, introduction to Drawer Boy, I subscribed to a magazine called uh, Theater International. And uh, I was doing a, a review of a, uh, a play in Canada, uh, several plays. One of them was Drawer Boy. And uh, it told the story of it, and it said that... Uh, uh, how ex- the uh, the reviewer was saying how exciting it was to be in uh, an opening night audience of a play that was obviously destined to be a classic. Uh, it was about two old men, basically, and a young actor who comes to stay with them. And so I just asked our artistic director, Martha Levy, if she would get a copy and maybe we could do a reading of it and see if uh, she got a hold of it. We read it. We all just fell in love with it. Uh, it... It's the perfect play for Steppenwolf, for one thing, because it's such a beautiful ensemble piece. There, there are no stars in that play. There are three great roles. It's about theater. It's about the the uh, redemptive power of art. It's about all things that mean an awful lot to me. And you appeared in it with Frank Galati? Yes. It's Frank Galati, who, who we know mostly as a director. Right. Uh, um, he's got a play opening, I think, this week or next true. week. Yeah, the, 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 Pirate the Pirate Queen. Queen. Uh, Frank is, without a doubt, was regarded for many, many years as the finest actor in Chicago. Uh, and I don't know why he gave it up. He was a, I, I used to see Frank Galati before I was even an actor. You know, I was, I'd be working at, the Nash, uh, at my, uh, my, my journal, uh, and I'd go to the theater, and I saw Frank in The National Health, and I saw him in Mother Courage, and uh, I saw him in Travesties and The Importance of Being Earnest. And uh, he was great, and then for some reason... He gave up acting and started concentrating on uh, adaptations. Uh, he won the Tony, I believe, for uh, Grapes of Wrath, uh, and uh, directing, and uh, and just seemed to have no. So when we got together to do, when we decided everybody loved Drawable, and we decided to do it, uh, I they said, "Who would you like to direct it?" Martha asked me, and I said, "Frank, no question. I'd love because I love being directed by Frank." 
So they call Frank, and uh, he called me back, and he said, John, I can't do it because of some other play that I'm directing and, and pre, pre-production schedules and everything. He said, but what do you think about me being in it? Well, I was over the moon. It had been my hugest desire to work on stage with Frank. Just, I couldn't believe it. I just yelled with joy. I said, God, yes, yes, yes. So uh, I said, uh, he said, it just means so much to me. He said, it just, it really, uh, he said, what part would you like me to do? And I said, oh, Frank, you know, this, and I, I told him that uh, he should definitely play Angus. And, um, so then we, he, you know, he said, uh, who do you think we should get to direct it? And I said, oh, there's only one person I would like to direct it if you're not going to, and that's Anna Shapiro. And he went nuts over that idea because he was a huge fan of Anna's too. And that's how it came about. I, and now he hasn't been back on stage again, and he was brilliant in it. Uh, and uh, they got a Jeff nomination for it in Chicago, and uh, he, was, he was just great. And I just I think that more than anything else is why I'm so I'll always be grateful to Drawer Boys that I got to act on stage with Frank Galati, my one of my absolute acting idols. Mm. But anyway, then yeah, I did. After that, uh, did it in. Uh, uh, they asked me to do a play at the Abbey in, in uh, Dublin, and uh, I mentioned that, and they said, "Well, we like to do Irish playwrights." And I said, "Well, come on, his name's Healy. There's got to be some Irish in there somewhere." So they they, they said, "Okay, yeah, we'll do it." So uh, we did it at the Peacock. Uh, theater in Dublin, and then uh, the Galway Arts Festival, and it was a huge success. In fact, there's a very bitter thing in the paper, the Irish papers, when we were leaving. The, the, the Abbey finally has a hit, and they're finally making money, and they've got to close it down because John Mahoney's got to go back to television. Well, I had to. It was my, you know, I had to go back to Frasier. There was nothing I could do about it, but I don't know why they couldn't have just recast it. Hmm. But, uh, but it was a huge hit there, and then I did it in uh, New Jersey, hoping desperately that that would transfer to New York, either on or off-Broadway, because it's such a terrific play. I don't know why it hasn't been here yet. And um, But anyway, that's the Drawer Boy story. Well, you mentioned performing uh, in Ireland. You did David Mamet's Romance in London. Yes. And to come full circle of having left England, what is it like to come back, to appear on the London stage... As an American, sans accent, yes. uh, sans English accent, right. as far as they're concerned, you have an accent. Yeah. Um, what What was it like to to appear in London? It was absolutely great. It was, uh, you know, I wanted, I've wanted so much to uh, to work in England. I did a very brief uh, uh, at a festival at the Barbican. I did Man Who Came to Dinner uh, f- uh, that we did at Steppenwolf, then took over there. But to actually. Uh, to do a play in London was just it was it was great uh the rest of the cast were all english um the director uh it was they didn't really know what to make of the play it was uh we got some wonderful reviews and we got some hideous some of the worst reviews i've ever well, had that's in been my the life. response to that particular play everywhere it's done absolutely you know i don't mean to sound um uh sexist or anything but it was interesting, especially in England, uh, the, the really, really rotten reviews came from women. And uh, I, I've been wondering about that. What, what, what is it about that play that, that would offend women more than it would offend men? It's not – I don't believe it's a sexist play. I think it's a terrifically uh, um, politically incorrect play. But I don't know why people would get upset about it because all the – you know the the outrageous things that are said in that play are said by such idiots that you know there's there's no way that you're you that you could be accused of of uh, of you know trying to use what they're saying is to influence anyone to to think that way or to speak that way or to be that way because all you know they're just they're just morons the people who are saying these terrible things i just found it extremely funny i i i Loved doing it. I thought the audiences were terrific, and um, uh, yeah, it was great. It, I, I'd like to go back there again. I'd like to go to Manchester. Uh, I've been offered uh, sort of carte blanche uh, since doing a romance, uh, a play to do at, uh, at the Royal Exchange, which I'd love to do because it means a lot to me. Anyway, I told you that mm-hmm. I, I, I was so impressed with the uh, Uncle Vanya there. It was one of the reasons that sort of galvanized me to to go to acting school 
Um, so I'd love to go back there and do it again, and I'd love to work in London again. It's a great place. Great. But I'll tell you one thing. If we're talking about favorite places to work, I think my favorite place is Ireland. And um, I, I've had such great experiences working in Ireland with uh, Long Day's Journey into Night, uh, Drawer Boy, a um, couple other things. I remember one time uh, I went out for dinner with the playwright Tom Murphy after uh, Long Day's Journey. And uh, we were talking, and I said to Tom, uh, I said, it's just amazing. I said, four hours, I didn't hear uh, I didn't hear a candy wrapper. I didn't hear a cough. I didn't hear anybody folding their legs. And Tom said, well, John, that that is uh, sacred to us. The theater in Ireland is sacred. And if you think about that, that's a wonderful, a wonderful thing. And, I, you know, I, I'd love to go back there again. Well, the theater in New York is pretty sacred to us, too. Oh, oh yes, yes. <laughs> and yeah. currently you're appearing in Prelude to a Kiss through the end right. of April. Yes. Uh, what next? Um, next, uh, not until – I'm not doing anything until next uh, spring. I'm doing a play at the Northlight Repertory Co- Company in Chicago, and it's being written as we speak uh, for Mike Nussbaum and I, a play by uh, uh, Craig Wright uh, – all I know is that uh, it's a three-character play based on a true story about a couple who were married. They get divorced. The woman remarries, and uh, her first husband gets very sick, and she talks the second husband into taking him into the house to take care of him until he dies. And that's all I know about it so far. But uh, it's being – we're going to rehearsal in March. And I hope that we will eventually see you back on Broadway. I'd love to be for, back For a third Broadway. shot at Broadway. Absolutely. And yeah. on that note, John Mahoney, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. It was a pleasure. Thanks, John. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, Help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.